gentlemen. Uh... Can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, come on by, check our wares out. Um, you know that spiel. So, you know, one of the things I like to do with this this podcast is, um, you know, lend a little aid and support to other up and coming podcasters who. <laughs> Uh, you know, the, the, the need, they need the exposure. They need someone to sort of give them that moment, that break that lets them sort of just tell the world that they exist, um, and expose them to a wider audience. And so that's why it's one of the more heartwarming things about my job is being able to give, you know, to pay it forward. And so that's why I have someone, uh, from this really fantastic niche podcast, uh, <laughs> called advisory opinions. Um, his name is David French. You may have heard of him. Uh, David, welcome back to the Remnant. I, I'm just, I'm just grateful for the break. You know, <laughs> just grateful for the break. It's like I'm, it's like I've got my five minute YouTube premiering at Sundance. You know, it's, it's so I'm, I'm just, I'm just glad to be here, Jonah. It's like there's this coffee company that won some contest, and the prize was a 30 second spot on the Super Bowl, and, um, uh. And apparently they've just, I can't, I wish I could remember their name, but, uh, they've apparently just been going gangbusters ever since because of that one thing. And this is, this is your 30 seconds spot on the Super Bowl. Like I said, I'm, I'm grateful. I mean, what else can I say? But how, what else can I express but gratitude here? So yeah. And conservatism <laughs> is gratitude as we often say. Right? So. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, uh, I figured we're going to, I, I might as well start with the sort of the obvious thing because you've written a bunch about it, including a really uh, wonderful piece about how to think about abortion. We should probably just sort of start with um, the abortion stuff because it's still in the news. It's still being, I would argue, and I'm about 99% sure you'd agree, pretty widely misreported um, about what happened and how. So, um, and we, so we, if you're a regular listener to this podcast or never, never mind AO or even the dispatch podcast, most of our listeners know this stuff, but we were talking in the green room. I think one of the reasons why I want to do this and I'm going to have Ramesh on later this week, um, is I think this thing gets overturned, but, but that Dobbs actually does play a, have a real shot of, if not fully over overturning Roe and Casey and all that stuff. But also, uh, but or at least wa- radically amending it. And given the hysteria that we've seen in response to this Texas SB8 law, I think it's sort of as a journalistic thing and as a philosophical thing, given where you know people like you and me come from, to help explain to prepare the public in a certain way for what the arguments to come are going to be. So anyway, why don't we sort of quickly work through what does SB8 do and why do you have reservations about it? Yeah, so SB8 is a heartbeat bill in one sense, which means uh, it bans abortions after a heartbeat is detected. And in that sense, it's not unusual. Um, if you look at a, a map of the U.S., basically the entire southeastern U.S. plus um, a few Midwest, Midwestern states now have passed heartbeat bills. And almost all of these have been um, blocked by court order. 
And the reason and the why they've been just blocked- to be clear, the heartbeat though, the heartbeat builds tend to be later than the one in Texas, right? The one in Texas is eight weeks or something like that. No, with this, it's just when you detect it. Um, oh, I so, see. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that's people just estimate when that is, you know, it might be six to seven weeks, you know, it may not be detectable till later, but the, the key is when you detect the heartbeat, then the abortion is unlawful. And most states, almost all states that have passed these, they would enforce the law in a conventional way, which is um, local law enforcement, attorney general, it's, it criminalizes abort, uh, performing the abortion. And so to block it, to, to try to sue to block the bill, you sue the state or the attorney general, you, stu- you sue the state officials who are charged with enforcing the law. And so the Harvey bills, every one of them that's been passed, every legislature that passes them know that they are, uh, they contradict the Roe Casey formula. And the whole purpose of passing them is to try to challenge Roe and Casey because there's a lot of other much smaller, more marginal changes to abortion regulation that can theoretically prevail and survive even without touching Roe and Casey, like regulations on um, regulating abortion centers like surgical care centers, et cetera. And so, but the heartbeat bills are completely incompatible with the Roe Casey framework. What the hope is to pass a whole bunch of these things, volley them up to the Supreme Court, basically saying now is the time, Supreme Court, to reevaluate Roe and Casey. Now, what's different about Texas is Texas was essentially trying to say, okay, we know we're passing a bill that contradicts controlling Supreme Court precedent, but we want to make it really hard for a court to block enforcement of the bill. So how do we do that? Well, the solution that they came up with, with was to remove any role for the state to enforce the law at all. Um, in fact, the law flatly prohibits any officer of the state or any employee of the state from suing an, uh, an abortion provider. So what it did is it says that any citizen can sue not just a person who performs an abortion, but anyone who aids or abets the performance of an abortion. Sue them for $10,000 plus attorney's fees um, if they win. And so that is a very novel way of enforcing a the heartbeat bill. Now, you know, and one of the things I said on the Dispatch podcast, also on Friday, also the Advisory Opinions podcast, um, if you're thinking, oh, wow, look how clever Texas is, high fives all around pro-life movement, Essentially, what you've done there is you've engineered a way to temporarily block enforcement of constitutional law. Okay, so uh, what what the Supreme Court did in its decision is it essentially said when the Whole Women's Health, which is an abortion clinic, provide uh, sued to stop the enforcement of the bill, they said they didn't overturn Roe v. Wade or anything. They just said these people that you have sued are not enforcing the law that you sued, like they sued one guy and the guy filed an affidavit saying, I'm not going to sue anybody over this. And they sued a state judge and the Supreme Court was through, you know, this very complicated legal doctrine called Ex parte Young basically said, well, we don't really know if you can sue this judge, Um, said you just haven't sued the right people. So we're not going to block enforcement of the law. And so the law went into effect and there were a lot of high fives and 
um, you know, Texas abortion clinics stop performing abortions. But the problem with the bill is the bill is engineered specifically to allow a state to temporarily avoid constitutional law. And there are just many ways in which that can be used um, in ways that conservatives who are very happy right now would really, really not like. Um, and, and the other thing about the bill, because it, it um, allows any person to sue and allows people to be sued uh, who aid or abet, then you could have such a situation like a friend of a former boyfriend who has heard that um, Jane got an abortion, sues Jane, sues, I mean, not, doesn't sue Jane, sues Jane's doctor, the nurse, the um, mom who paid for it, uh, the boyfriend who drove her to the clinic. And, you know, th- one of the challenges of when you allow anybody to sue, Sometimes they're going to, not only is, is that a problem, even if Jane received an abortion, but what if Jane didn't get an abortion? You know, all of these people are going to have to hire lawyers, pay for, um, you know, pay for a, a representation. And if they win, if they're held to be not aiders or abettors, if there was no abortion performed, they don't get to recover anything. And so what you've done is you've incentivized a lot of people to the the tune of $10,000 sort of hunting for people who received an abortion. And now most people aren't going to do that, right? Most people are not going to do that. But you've, you've empowered everybody. So there are people who will do that, who are cranks, who are vindictive, who have some sort of relationship grudge. And it's, it's, it's a mess. It's a mess. Yeah. So a couple of things. One, one of the responses you hear from people is, you know, you hear this hypothetical, which I think I probably raised when I first heard about the law about, well, people can do this on guns. People can do this on all sorts of things. The difference is, is that the second amendment exists, right? The road doesn't in, in the sense of in the constitution. And, um, and so you can, I mean, it's funny, the, the, everyone's trying to find the right metaphor to explain what Texas legislature has done. And some people talk about how they created a, you know, I think I heard Charlie Cook say this, is that they created a very ornate key to pick a very specific lock, right? Which I think is good, one good way of thinking about it. Another way of thinking about it is it's sort of like they used essentially legal CRISPR to design you know, you know, a specific molecule to do a certain thing that fits just into the row situation. And I get all that. Um, but, um, it's, it seems to be, it's the thing that bothers me about it among, I mean, among other things is, um, I do not like the idea of establishing or expanding any principle in American common law or American law that says you can sue someone even if you personally have not been harmed. Um, and that seems to be what it's doing, right? I mean, like you could be a total stranger. You can, I mean, like it, that's, that's problematic to me just on the merits. Now there are some juris, there are some doctrines where you're allowed to do that. For example, key TAM litigation where you're allowed to recover for recover funds that have been defrauded from the government. So, um, 
I'm able to sue sort of as a deputy. I'm deputized by the government to recover funds that someone has taken from the government. And so, but th- this is something different. Um, I use this analogy in my Sunday piece. Uh, in in civil law, we have this concept called wrongful death. So, and this is something that you've seen happen in some high profile murder cases where somebody is prosecuted for murder and then there's a follow on civil lawsuit for the damages caused, the the financial damages caused by the death. And this is something, this is O.J. Simpson, for example, was sued for wrongful death after he was acquitted by murder and he was held responsible for wrongful death because it's a different standard of proof, preponderance of the evidence rather than than beyond a reasonable doubt. This is sort of like enabling me to sue, say, a drunk driver for wrongful death if like a neighbor is killed by a drunk driver. Um, and so that, you know, someone else's tragedy becomes my financial opportunity that I can then sue this drunk driver or someone who, uh, you know, killed another person that I know they killed another person, but it wasn't somebody close enough to me to give me traditional standing to file a wrongful death suit. Because we're, we're quite used to in, in American law, the idea of suing for wrongful death, but there is a relationship you have to have to the deceased to do that. And this gives you whatever, there is no relationship necessary at all. And, and the eight or a better liability also really expands who can be sued. And the other thing is, I totally get it. I mean, I think Roe Casey should be overturned. And that, that very question is before the Supreme Court now. So if people say, well, this is the only way to deal with Roe and Casey. Well, we have a case right before the Supreme Court that they're going to be considering Roe and Casey with the closest thing to an over, overwhelming pro-life majority that we've seen on the court in generations. So that's going to be right there. Um, you, you said something that I think is really um, interesting and worth addressing, which is Roe and Casey aren't in the Constitution. The Second Amendment is. Very true, and which is one of the reasons why I think Roe and Casey should fall. But no particular Second Amendment doctrine is in the Constitution. In other words, there's going to be, have to be a lot of judicial interpretation on the extent of the Second Amendment. What does it really mean? How far does it go? And so what you're going to have, possibly, potentially, if this is, seem, is deemed to be a success, is, well, let's say the Supreme Court says that, um, so-called assault weapons and uh, so-called large capacity magazines are protected by the Second Amendment. Well, that's not right in the text of the Second Amendment. Uh, That's an interpretation of the Second Amendment. And New York says, "Uh, nope, if you own or buy one of these weapons or have have one of these magazines, it's against the law, but no state official can enforce it. But any citizen, if they know that you have an assault weapon, can sue you for ten, and they can collect ten thousand dollars in attorney's fees, et cetera. Um, then that's that's kind of you know what we're talking about here. Um, or if any, if you know anybody, uh, it sells you one, you can sue them for ten thousand dollars. And there, the sort of the ways to do this are almost endless. And and I totally get what you're saying that there's no Roe Casey in the Constitution. But there's also no, a lot of these core First Amendment values or Second Amendment values or you name it that we uphold 
and are valuable and even critical to our constitutional framework are not explicitly in the Constitution either. They have been interpreted as, as, as being that the First Amendment is broad enough to encompass them or the Second Amendment is broad enough to encompass them. And so, yeah, again, you know, this is the kind of thing that be careful what you wish for because it is not hard at all to conceive of alternative legal regimes that conservatives would be really, really upset about. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the one that seems obvious to me actually isn't the gun stuff because my assumption is, is that if the gun stuff, if you could do it with the gun stuff, it would have been done a lot already. And I mean, I know that it's been tried in little ways, but the place where it seems like it's just a bonanza is on climate change stuff. Right. Where you say, hey, you used, you know, more than your, allot, your fair share of greenhouse gases. I'm going to sue you for your private jet, you know, and you could come up with all sorts of weird where you could actually claim harms, you know, because, you know, where unlike, you know, with the abortion thing, which I understand harms the social fabric and there are all sorts of arguments about it, but, but like, you could actually come up with economic models of harms that are, you know, that do, cl- that, that do make you a victim in some way. No, but I so, I, so, I, so let's, let's just talk about Roe for a second. Um, uh, you'll correct me whether I'm, when I, where I get it wrong, but Roe in many ways is, is still sort of foundational, but the real standards are now in Casey and whole women's health, all these cases that are downstream of it. Um, I have, you know, part of, um, part of my theory about the Roe thing is, is that when people, there are very few, when it comes to, it's, how to put this, in, in normal life, there is a tendency for people to freak out about things that are actually the most secure. So, for example, the free speech stuff these days. Free speech has never been freer, and people are more freaked out about the threat to free speech than they've ever been, right? And, right. Um, and, uh, and you can actually make the case that oh, the American people have never been freer, but we're more freaked out about our lost liberties than we have ever been on a whole wide range of things. Um, I mean, I've always been amazed at how much conservatives in particular have bought into this idea that the entire history of America has been the history of, of our liberties being encroached upon and stolen. And in some cases, that's absolutely true. But in some cases, it's just obviously not true. Like black people and women are more free today than they were 50, 100, or 150 years ago. Um, and you can come up with all sorts of things like that, regardless. Um, when it comes to constitutional principles, though, or when it comes to constitutional cases, the reverse is true. That the more people talk about them being absolutely secure and inviolable shows you how fragile they are. And you would not hear people talking about how Roe is a super precedent. It is the most, one of the most established precedents in constitutional law, except for the fact that they're afraid that it, it's not. And, you know, the real cases, the real constitutional cases that are established and are safe are the ones no one's been debating for a hundred years because they're just everyone. They're, they're truly dogmatic commitments at this point, but Roe, Unlike even gay marriage, which no one's talking about, like overturning a Burgerfell or any of those kinds of things, um, not in any serious way, Roe has been fundamentally damaging to American life in ways that no constitutional case, I, I, I think since what Dred Scott, um, um, 
And so I, I take your point that when the, when the Supreme Court says something's in the Constitution, it becomes constitutional. It becomes a right and all that kind of stuff. But sometimes um, when there's a bad line of code and it keeps popping up an error message, something else is going on. And it seems to me that's why the row part needs to be fixed so that a lot of our institutions can get back to normal. What, what is your brief case? First of all, did I get anything wrong? And second of all, what is your brief case against Roe as constitutional law, as, as interpreted? Um, so the, the brief case against Roe as constitutional law is quite simply that it's made up. Okay, so th- this, is, this is made up law. And the interesting thing about Roe is even some abortion rights activists, when Roe was decided, including some rather prominent people, said, whoa, <laughs> what did the court do here? I mean, you, most, most things that you look at as bedrock, everything else that I can think of that you look at as a bedrock constitutional right. Um, you might disagree about the extent of it. How broad is the First Amendment right to free speech? How broad should our free exercise religion rights be? What does the right to keep and bear arms mean? What is an unreasonable search and seizure? All of these things, they're grounded in the text. But essentially, the, the precursor to Roe was a, a, a line of authority that essentially said, look, if you look at a lot of these different constitutional doctrines, they have implications, and those implications add up to a right of privacy, an overall overarching sort of right of privacy. And that that overall and overarching right of privacy means something and that, that is broad enough to fit a right to abortion in. And so the Constitution is just silent about abortion. It's silent about it. Um, and prior to 1973 and prior to Roe, abortion law was viewed as a matter of state regulation in the way that state criminal law by default is viewed as a matter of state regulation. And so the fo- core fundamental view of Roe is it's A, that it's made up, and then B, let me quote none other than former um, and the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg in 1992, it's made up, and B, it's breathtaking in scope. So that was what Ruth Bader Ginsburg said in a 1992 speech, which turned into a Law Review article. She said, Roe is breathtaking in scope because they took a Texas abortion law, which was one of the strictest in the nation at that time, and they used it to essentially sweep aside all 50 state laws that being all the laws in all 50 states that either banned abortion or or restricted it substantially just at one big stroke and so Ruth Bader Ginsburg in 1992 said this was breathtaking and would we be going through many of the same kinds of conflicts that we're enduring now if Roe was less broad and so it wasn't just that it was made up um, there are doctrines right now that I can name off the top of my head that have been made up by the court just in some cases, contradict statutes. Here's one of my favorite hobby horses is qualified immunity. Qualified immunity is part of the fabric of American law now, and it's unjust, and it's made up. It is not in the statute that they that the courts are interpreting. But any and, and so it was made up, and it's breathtaking in scope. And so here's my response to a lot of people who say, well, wait a minute, David. If Roe is overturned, that's destabilizing. You know, that that's disruptive. Um, my response to that is Roe is destabilizing. Roe is disruptive and it continues to be destabilizing. It continues to be disruptive to this day. I can think of 
few issues that distort American politics more than abortion, um, especially, you know, as we saw in the last four years on the right side of the aisle, where sort of the Trump card to play was, <laughs> no pun intended, but the Trump card for Trump was, well, whatever his faults, and they are many, he's pro-life. Whatever any other fault he has, he's pro-life. And if Roe is overturned, Roe does, overturning Roe Casey does not ban abortion. It sends it straight back to the states as a matter of, to be regulated as a matter of state law under state constitutions. And the people of each state then decide what their abortion law is going to be. And my theory, and I could be totally wrong about this, Chona, but my theory is after an initial wave of convulsion where people would absolutely be furious and absolutely be angry and there would be protests in the streets after a period of time, actually overturning Roe might bring greater stability and might remove that distortion from our politics and place greater emphasis on local control and local elections so that this isn't hovering over our national politics every four years where people have passionate feelings about it, but very little ability to impact it because it's all judge-made law. All right. So um, I have other abortion questions, but I'm going to have Ramesh on and he's, um, he's a anti-Roe machine. So, but I do want to ask him a question <laughs> that I want to ask you because um, I want to see if you have different answers. Um, I absolutely understand completely. I, I know you well, we've talked on and off mic, um, read you for years, stipulated your commitment to overturning Roe your opposition to abortion come from, in my opinion, the best of possible motives, right? And, 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 and that the downstream effects of doing these things, even if they are bad for partisan purposes in one way or another, are secondary or tertiary considerations as far as you are concerned. That said, put on your pundit hat. Sure. What is um, what is the effect on the two parties, um, in crass political terms, if you get rid of Roe? That's a great question. There would be a bit of a destabilizing effect on, in my view, in both parties over time. Um, I think that Republicans could no longer count on the vote of a portion of their base, no matter what. So there, because abortion has become so polarized on a partisan basis, and, and look, part of the reason for that is because of conservative voters. I mean, conservative voters in the South voted out pro-life Democrats, just clean sweep, voted out pro-life Democrats. Only pro-life Republicans came in to replace them. But there is a disgruntled portion, for example, of the evangelical base that is hanging with the GOP now by a thread. Not sure how big it is, but this is something I hear constantly, just constantly in from fellow evangelicals, which is the I it's a, abortion is keeping me with the GOP and that's it. And that's even tenuous. And so I think that the GOP would lose something there where and, you know, a lot there's a lot of questions about how cynical this has all been, <laughs> you know. Is, is the GOP establishment, the establishment, um, sort of using pro-life voters 
sort of believing that the dog will never catch the car or the, you know, the donkey will never catch the carrot. <laughs> and so you kind of, you say to these folks, there's nowhere for you to go. I mean, whatever else you li- like or dislike or whatever, there's nowhere else for you to go. This is the, your most important issue. This is the only party for the issue. And then if all of a sudden on a national level, that is no longer true. On a national level, that is not the central you know, that that has now become mainly a state issue. I think it might have some reshuffling effects on politics. The other thing is, um, I I think the final, the way this would all work out and the way this would all shake out likely would not make the the people who are most committed on either side of the abortion question all that happy. Now, there will be states um, mainly sort of, you know, there will be states, mainly some of the lower population Southern states that are overwhelmingly conservative that would, for example, retain their heartbeat bills and all of that. But as a general matter, you would probably end up with abortion laws that look more like Europe's, um, and sort of less like the all or nothing kind of formulation you see in a lot of places uh, you the all or nothing formulation you hear in the debate because while it's super difficult to poll on abortion and don't get Sarah Isger my advisory opinions co-host started on all the problems with abortion polling and she's right at least we we tend to have a general idea that most people are in some version of mushy middle on abortion and that the the um, the later in the term, the pregnancy, the greater the majority that don't want to see abortion. The earlier in the term, the pregnancy, the more people who are at least acceptable, uh, who are accept it being legal. And so what you have is um, a majority of people, I think, who are more in favor of some mushiness in there, which is not where dedicated pro-life activists want the public to be. And it's not where dedicated pro-choice activists want the public to be, but that's where the public generally is. And I think over time, you would see that shake out. Uh, with one big caveat, Jonah, um, I was talking to somebody we both know and admire a great deal as a super smart person, but he d- didn't give me permission to explicitly to share his name, but he said something really smart and he says, actually, Abortion isn't the motivating factor of the right-wing coalition as much as it used to be. Um, that it's gone, it's below anti-wokeness, for example. It's below anti-cancel culture. That it is now a smaller and smaller core that is really centering everything around, centering around abortion. And a larger, as the GOP coalition gets more populist, a larger core that is about the anti-wokeness, anti, anti-cancel culture, et cetera. And so that could have unpredictable effects where abortion becomes a secondary or tertiary kind of issue. Yeah. So I, mean, I, I generally agree with most, with all of that. Um, it's funny though. It's like, I, you immediately went to how evangelicals might not be in the pocket of the GOP the way they've been for a long time. And I think that's probably or some segment of them. Uh, a segment, a yeah. subset. <laughs> um, and what's interesting to me is that it seems to me that like there's another segment of the GOP coalition 
that would not necessarily be in the GOP column anymore. And that's a lot of sort of moderate, suburban, upper middle class Republicans who are probably, they're certainly not pro-life, no exceptions types. Um, they certainly really don't like talking about it one way or the other. Um, but with, when they assume that Roe is just there and it's not going to get overturned, it in effect gives them free reign to vote on things like taxes and national defense or a thousand other things, right? And you could certainly see in some regions of the country where those kinds of Republicans, call them for the sake of better of better label, country club Republicans, um, are the majority makers for Republicans. And all of a sudden, they're like, crap, I mean, I, you know, I'm not for infanticide or third-term abortions or whatever, but I'll, I, I can't, like, say I'm against abortion, including for rape and incest. And now the Republicans want to get, you know, want to do this stuff, and you could see them not voting. And, um, and, and so in some ways, you could, all, you could almost see, you know, so I, I think it's very, but what you also, what you didn't mention is what the effect is on Democrats. And we've talked about a bunch of times before about how um, the general rule about social issues in politics is that um, social issues are good for Republican voters and, and good for Democratic fundraisers, fundraisers, right? And so Democrats make a lot of money off of the social issues. Republicans get a lot of votes off of the social issues. And I think abortion is probably the best example of that in terms of the intensity stuff. And, um, uh, but I made this point very quickly on Fox News Sunday the other day. It's very telling that the, um, all that stuff about the voting rights thing in Texas where the Democrats got on the plane and they brought, they wore the mask and all that kind of stuff, right? And they fled the jurisdiction to, to save democracy in America. Um, this thing, this SB8 abortion thing was passed in what, in May? They had plenty of time to say something about it, um, and they didn't. And I think part of the reason why is that African Americans and Hispanics and a big chunk of the Democratic coalition is much less comfortable with the sort of elite, woke, Planned Parenthood, college-educated, uh, you know, let's celebrate abortion regime that defines the elite of the party. And if they start talking about that, that, that define, you know, uh, divides their base. I mean, uh, John Podorz was pointing out the other day that at one point, the le a bunch of pro abortion rights people were saying, you know, trying to mount this movement of shout your abortion, you know, like, yeah, that goes and, nowhere. And it goes nowhere. Cause like at the end of the day, I, I know lots of pro choice people who want to stay pro choice. They don't like talking about it. You know, and the brilliance of Bill Clinton's position of safe, legal, and rare, as much as we can have arguments about the underlying policies behind it, was brilliant rhetoric. Because I think that basically defines where the, 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 the meatiest part of the bell curve of American opinion is on this stuff. And so anyway, I, I, think, I think obviously you're right. It would have a hugely destabilizing effect. I often think about, you know, you talk about subsets. The smallest subset of, of, Democrat, of, of voters... I know of is Charlie Cook, because whenever we talk about <laughs> politics, he always points out that he could never vote Democrat because of the abortion issue. But Charlie is an Oxford educated British atheist. And um, like the GOP can afford to lose his vote. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That's a constituency. <laughs> um, 
So anyway, I just I, I think you're right that it's destabilizing. I think it is um, probably for the next couple election cycles, not to the GOP's benefit. And right, I, I agree with that. And I think it's sort of fascinating the way Democrats. So let me ask you one last question on the abortion thing. The freak out over the SB8 thing. How much of this is Democrats working the refs to send the signal to, to the court? Look how much we're freaking out about this. Um, <laughs> if you do the Dobbs thing, um, you know, it's going to be Goddardamerung. And does the court, if you're, if you're Roberts, and you're like, well, look, if they're going to freak out about this dumb procedural thing that we had to do on the shadow docket and blah, 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 blah. Does he say, oh man, that really is a third rail. We're not going to touch it. Or does he say, since there's nothing we can do that they won't say is unreasonable, let's just swing for the fences and take care and pull the bandaid off. I mean, like, where do you actually think is going to happen? Yeah. So, um, I think there's a going to be, I mean, look, there's an element of working the refs now. But if you think the refs are being worked now, just wait. <laughs> I mean, there's going to be massive working of the refs on both sides. I mean, you know, there's going to be people on the right are going to say, this is the test of the entire conservative legal movement. If the conservative legal movement cannot deliver Roe and Casey being overturned, it, it and the whole Federalist Society and the whole thing is just nothing but a house of cards. It needs to be shoves shoved aside and we need to be nominating, you know, Pam Bondi's all the way down. <laughs> um, and then there's going to be people on the left who are, this is the final test of the legitimacy of the Supreme Court of the United States. If you don't, if you, if you reverse Roe Casey, we are going to court pack, you know, that is going to hover over and that's going to be in the background because we're going to have a midterm election. And, what if Joe Manchin, first of his name, Lord of the coal-soaked hills, no longer is the guy, you know, who blocks all of this stuff and the de Democrats make gains and somehow hold the house? I mean, there's a, going to be a lot of uh, pressure being brought to bear. How does it shake out? I, you know, I tend to believe that it's relatively rare that relatively rare that justices um, make sort of a cold-blooded institutionalist calculation. I mean, Roberts sort of has that reputation. But what's, what's different about Roe, and I keep going back to this, is that there is no stabilizing outcome here because Roe was destabilizing. There isn't a clear path here that says, oh, this will calm down America. <laughs> it, it isn't there. And so I think the justices ultimately will rule according to their judicial philosophies. And now if that means if you think that, oh, I just predicted Roe's going to fall, I would say I'm increasingly of the opinion that it will, although I'm still, um, cons I still think it probably won't, but I'm beginning to ease in towards the 50-50 to maybe probably will. But the reality is we don't know what of the six justices on the court who are nominated in, in by Republicans, only one of them has come out and unequivocally said Roe Casey are illegit. And that's, that's Clarence Thomas. One of the six while on the bench has said that. So we don't really fully know what, where the other five are. I have varying degrees of confidence about where they are, but we don't really know. So when I say I think they'll rule in accordance with their judicial philosophy, that is not a declaration that they're going to rule 
against Roe Casey. We should reconvene after oral argument in the case. But the working of the refs. And then the other thing I would say, just to flip back, I think you're exactly right that um, there is an enormous amount of intensity be, uh, in, about abortion that is held by a minority of the Democratic Party. And there's a, an enormous amount of intensity about abortion that is held by a minority of the Republican Party. And these, the minority on both sides has disproportionate influence over primaries, for example, over fundraising. Um, but there are different ways that each one of those sort of wings can be the dog that caught the car. And the, and the smarter members of those movements are very well aware of that. Um, but, you know, one of the way, the last place to go to gauge public opinion on abortion is Twitter. <laughs> that is the absolute last place. And you see, you know, I, I'm sure you've seen this a ton, Jonah. There's this kind of version of the new version of the right that says, hey, where the people are in America is socially conservative and economically more liberal. That's where Americans are. And that's where, you know, this is sort of, you see this coming up from sort of the integralist Catholic right and some more populist. When they say socially conservative, they might be thinking one thing, but where most Americans are, quote unquote, socially conservative, isn't their conservative. It's not their conservative. It's not an abolitionist position on Roe. Their conservative would be mushy middle on Roe but to the right of the democratic base. Their position on, say, LGBT issues is pro-gay marriage, but not necessarily pro-biological males competing in track meets against girls. Like, that's their version of socially conservative, which isn't socially conservative compared to, say, where the, the populist right sort of thought leaders are, but they're to the right of the democratic base. But they're also to the left of the Republican base. <laughs> on social issues. And I think that's the uncomfortable reality, which is why I say in my piece, there is no way through to ending abortion because the, the goal of the pro-life movement shouldn't, isn't just banning abortion, it's ending, it's ending. You could ban something that remains popular and widespread. I mean, we've seen that with prohibition, we've seen that with drugs, we've seen the real goal is ending and ending is a matter of heart change and cultural change and that's been happening. I mean, that's been happening. The, the abortion rate right now in the U.S. is lower than it was when Roe was decided. And when Roe was decided, abortion was unlawful or very tightly restricted in most states in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a very good point. Um, I also think, I mean, we don't need to get into the swamps of the nationalist crowd, but I do think it's it's almost perfect script writing that the moment that we're on the cusp of conceivably getting rid of Roe, right? That the position of the conservative movement is changing from, I shouldn't say the conservative movement, for the new right, whatever we want to call it, is changing from the sort of standard Federalist Society, David French, Jonah Goldberg, you know, National Review view that send this back to the states, let states work it out, to no, 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 we now need to have a mirror image of the Roe regime that imposes from the federal courts one-size-fits-all policy on the entire country. And um, that's going to be kind of a, I mean, a fascinating round of, of, of 
movement hypocrisy. You can't necessarily accuse the people making these arguments of hypocrisy because some of them are so new to this stuff they weren't bought into the old arguments anyway, you know. But as as, as a matter of public perception, uh, the right is going to have to if the if the Vermeulian stuff catches on more, um, the Josh Hammer stuff catches on more, we're going to get to a point where the conservative conservatives in general are going to have a long have to have a spend a lot of time and money and effort explaining why they're not complete hypocrites on on this stuff but that's that's a longer conversation that we've been having for a while <laughs> but i think that's mainly like a dorm room bs session those, those conversations because they're so divorced from where the ju- jurisprudence is they're so far away from where the jurisprudence is that that strikes me as the kind of really tiresome conversation we have on Twitter where someone adopts a position that is not remotely plausible in current American politics and says, this is the strength that I have, is that this is how strong I am in my conservatism. I am adopting this completely unrealistic position. What say you, weakling? Yeah, no, (laughs) well, look, I mean, for me, it's it's like the, the people who say writing on their computers under a uh, halogen light bulb um, in an air-conditioned home office using the internet about how the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution were bad. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there's a lot of that kind of stuff out there too, you know, Um, or, you know, how all we have to do is convince Americans that this Central European country, landlocked country of 10 million people (laughs) is really great and therefore America is going to invest in Orbanism. And, you know, it, which it, there's a lot, I agree. The dorm roomification of a lot of this stuff is kind of maddening. And my, and, my, my favorite ahead. literal dorm room discussion was a, probably a four to five hour argument I had with a, a, an extremist libertarian in law school over whether he should be able to purchase a SAM surface to air missile to shoot down any airliner that did not pay to traverse his airspace. And, and I was thinking the other day, when you read some of this stuff, that I'm, I'm thinking, thank goodness that guy didn't have a Twitter account in 1992 <laughs> or access to some of these new journals, or that would be the manly position in certain circles. And all you weaklings, you know, who are opposed to private SAM ownership need to come forth. I mean, yeah, that, that's a lot of the quote unquote discourse now. My, um, my dad, who was a bit of an outside-the-box thinker, one of his favorite ideas was um, that we should shrink all of humanity down to about a foot or a half a foot tall, and that way the amount of resources would be endless, and the costs of for everything from food to transportation would be um, you know, reduced by huge percentages, and everyone could have a mansion. Um, and uh, he would be the first to concede that this was that on the drawing board, this was a great idea. Right. Um, but then, <laughs> then when you start pointing out things like the, uh, um, what do you do about the feral dogs and the hawks that all of a sudden can carry you away? <laughs> and he's like, all right. <laughs> all right. In the time we have left, let's, let's switch gears for a second. We're coming up on the 20th anniversary of, of nine 11. We do not need to relitigate. Afghanistan. I think everybody knows where you and I and the dispatch comes from and all of that. Um, 
But I, uh, um, the LA Times asked me to write about um, Afghanistan, and I actually, the, the piece that's going to be up on the dispatch is a little different than the LA Times version uh, for reasons that aren't all that interesting, but read the dispatch version. Um, um, it's fine. Going back and, you know, talk about bad script writing or two on the nose script writing. You know, the thing that, as a lot of people pointed out, you know, a chapter in American history that begins with essentially Americans leaping off of a burning building ends with Afghan, you know, Afghans, um, falling out of a rescue plane, trying to escape the winners of the so-called good war. Right. And it's very depressing when you think about it. And, um, looking back on the last 20 years, particularly the first 10 years of, let's just call it the war on terror. Um, it's kind of difficult for me not to look back on it. And, and so part of the point I'm trying to make, I try to make in the piece is that, you know, we always look at the past through the prism of today. And, you know, one of the points I've written a lot about is how the present off, you know, everyone talks about how the present shapes, shapes the future. We very rarely talk about how the present changes the past. And like after nine 11, all of a sudden, a lot of the dates that defined our political experience shrank in importance. 1917, which was like the beginning of the 20th century in a lot of ways, shrunk. 1989, which was this monumental date, shrunk. 1945, all those kinds of things. And meanwhile, like the 1979 Iranian Revolution grew in importance and the takeover of Saudi Arabia grew in importance. And similarly, as I look back on the last 20 years, it's really difficult for me not to see it through the prism of the culture war craziness of today and so many of the fights on the left and the right that took place during the war on terror really feel like sort of war by other culture war by other means stuff for example um you know the the argument about systemic racism or institutional racism and Hey, well, that's that's just a long-standing new version of a left-wing argument that says America is fundamentally flawed, right? That America is the bad guy, and you know, and sort of calling to mind the, you know, um, uh, what was it? The what was it Emerson who said, you know, the problem with liberals is they won't even take their own side in an argument. Um, <laughs> right. And so, like the whole debate about Islamophobia, the coming Muslim backlash that really never materialized, the idea that like the the future of liberty hinged on library records that required a warrant to get um, was all just basically an earlier version of that stuff. And um, the right wing stuff from Freedom Fries to, you know, the paranoia that Sharia was seconds away from taking over this country, you know, um, and you can, and you, and even in the, one of the most interesting things to me was, and I hadn't really thought about this before is how, for the first phase of the war on terror, the left owned the freedom of speech issue. Ward Churchill is a, you know, a hero and the highest form of patriot dissent is the highest form of patriotism. And then when Obama comes into office, all of a sudden the right becomes the free speech warriors and you should be able to draw Muhammad cartoons and you should be able to burn the Quran. And, you know, and why are they giving a heckler's video to people, veto to people who don't like this film? It's just very difficult when I look back on it now, and I feel a little embarrassed and ashamed about it, um, not to see a lot of that, a lot of the America response to 
that horrific event being kind of selfishly and solipsistically just culture war stuff. Um, am I wrong? I mean, where am I wrong about this? Because I'd like to be wrong about some of it. Well, I think for a period there, there wasn't. I mean, there was at the, you could go on a college campus in November 01 or December 01 and there would be people fighting about stuff. But there was a period where we were united in a way that I don't, it's hard for me to even be a hard for me to even imagine that that we could be united, even if we were just flat out attacked today. You know, the God bless America on the Capitol steps. I mean, there was still an overwhelming majority. It was a super majority of people who wanted to go into Iraq, for example. So I feel like what happened was sort of a a unification followed by a pretty rapid fade of that unification that by 04, the 04 election had just was just gone, had just evaporated. And 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 I've I've actually gone back and write, you know, working on my own book about uh, American divisions. I kind of look back at the temporary unity following 9-11 as something that I don't know that we could even replicate that anymore. Well, that's part of my point is that it's very depressing to me that after 20 years of the war on terror, which we're saying for the sake of argument, it's over. We don't, in fact, know that it is. This could be a new round two because of what we did in Afghanistan. But 20 years after the war on terror, I, I, I feel like we are left less equipped to, co- to respond positively or, or effectively to a 9-11 than we were on 9-11, which is depressing as hell when you think about it. Totally. I mean, you know, think about 9-11 under the current environment with Twitter. I mean, which, and I hate to keep bringing up Twitter because most people aren't on it, but you know who is on it? Basically every decision maker in Washington, every single serious political figure or in, in media figure. So a lot of the early opinion makers and early definers of narratives and all of that, you would have the finger pointing and the blame game while the, you know, the fireball would still be going in the air and the, the blame game would start. I mean, that, that's how bad it would be. I mean, you wouldn't even have a period of shock and mourning. You would from most decent people, but the, the political discourse would not even contain that period of shock and mourning with, before it went straight to the blame game, before you would have immediate calls for the resignation of whoever was president at that moment. Some people calling for impeachment for failing to keep the America America safe, and my gosh, I mean the way that would play out. And and I think don't think our enemies don't know this. You know th- this is this is something they're very well aware of. And I and I think about that when I think about things like NATO and Russia or China. You know Russia and Estonia or Russia and biting off another chunk of Ukraine or China and Taiwan. I think that they know very well that we still have overwhelming military power, but underwhelming popular will and enormous amount of divisions. And this is something that really concerns me for the future of the country and our ability to respond to challenges, much less our ability to just continue to get along. But I'm right there with you, Jonah. I'm deeply depressed by where we are right now. I'm, I'm, it's very sad, especially when you consider, I mean, George W. Bush came out of the 2000 election. And oh, by the way, can you imagine a 2000 election controversy now? Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, he came out of the 2000 election and by December of 01, he's bumping around 80, 90% approval um, for his response to 9-11. I just can't even imagine that right now. I just, that, that just feels like a different, you know, like, like I've read a, a, a fantasy fiction book that to imagine something like that now. Yeah. And, and anyway, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's funny because like rereading, you know, go, trying to go in my mind back through some of those old controversies. Um, you realize how much of, you know, the populist sort of media machine crap on both the left and the right drove so much of the debates about things. I mean, for example, um, look, I, 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 I'll, I'll be upfront. There was an increase in anti-Muslim sentiment in the United States, and some of it was very bad because of 9-11. Um, but I'll often point out to people, you know, I could say to people, uh, there's no better country in the world, including arguably Israel, to be a Jew in the world than the United States of America. You are safer as a Jew in America, arguably than Israel, because there's just not lots of people lo launching rockets to kill you because you're a Jew in, in the United States. But, uh, and people go, oh, that's great. You know, that's wonderful. What a great thing about America. And then I'll say, well, you do know that, that in every year following 9-11, there were more reported hate crimes against Jews than there were against Muslims. And at the very minimum, it shows you how like the Muslim backlash thing was overdone. I would actually argue, and I think this is kind of a fascinating bit of cultural trivia, anti-Muslim sentiment in Hollywood was stronger and more pronounced <laughs> before 9-11 than after 9-11. Um, you had all sorts of movies about, you know, fanatical Arab and Muslim suicide bombers and terrorists and stuff. Um, you know, Denzel, Ma Ma Denzel Washington made that movie about, you know, uh, uh, terrorist attacks on, in New York city in like 98 that, um, can't remember the name of it right this second, but that you could never possibly make after nine 11. And, um, my point is that this speaks to the fact that we are basically a good and decent and tolerant country that understood you shouldn't blame, you know, person X for what person Z did, but to listen to left-wing media that was basically taught, we were rounding up Muslims and we were this horrible, you know, authoritarian regime. And the reason why they did a lot of that kind of reporting is one, they kind of want it to be true because they want to sort of like be rebels against the oppressors. But two is because they were listening to a bunch of jackass right-wingers who are saying round up Muslims. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and so the, 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 the way in which both sides kind of ping feed each other, you know, the, it's, 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 it's like a New Yorker cartoon of two trolls out to dinner on their anniversary. And they're doing that crossed arm things, feeding each other, um, to sustain each other. And I, I I'm embarrassed to the extent to which I didn't see that more clearly 20 years ago or 15 years ago than, than it seems to me now. And maybe it's wasn't as bad as all that, but it, it certainly, there was more of that than I appreciated at the time. You know, that I'm so, I'm, it's, I'm glad you brought that up because it actually mirrors a conversation I had at dinner with some really good friends 
last night, we were talking about the, the, you know, what we call the before times and sort of what role, quite frankly, that like we played in the left is, you know, here's what the left is like. And did, what kind of role did I play in, in sort of mischaracterizing the left or overgeneralizing about the left and sort of feeding into this, feeding into this, um, partisan, you know, mutual loathing and animosity. And I, I think one of the things that if, as I look back and I'm looking back at disputes between, and sometimes even heated disputes, I was mis, I was misreading the room in this sense. And what I was misreading about the room, so to speak, was that I had a feeling about political fights along the lines of imagine you sit down with a friend and it gets really heated and y'all kind of yell back and forth. And then after it's over, you know, you say, how are the kids? Man, that got a little heated, you know, but hey, it's fun to talk, you know, it's fun to hash it out, you know, sort of this. But what was really happening was that as people were getting heated, there wasn't that underlying base level of affection. Um, you know, like I could imagine you and I, we, we might find something we disagree over and we, it maybe it might get heated. I don't know, but there's this underlying friendship and respect and affection. And what was happening was people were fighting and perhaps with underlying animosity or perhaps saying, Hey, look, we can fight it out in the old classic Reagan, Ronald Reagan, Tip O'Neill situation where then you can have dinner afterwards. Every fight was building animosity because there wasn't that underlying degree of respect or affection or feeling of common citizenship or whatever that made that I took for granted existing. And, and so what was happening was every, you know, one cable hit at a time, one ferociously angry think piece at a time, people were painting a picture of their political opponents as slowly filling in, you know, or connecting all the dots. And when all the dots were connected, what existed but was a caricature of an awful, evil human being. And, and that's literally where we are now. Like, that, that is literally the defining characteristic of politics is animosity. And, you know, when I look back to that era and, and that post-9-11 era, post-Iraq war, um, that, all of that was building in. All of that was, was was sort of coloring, you know, filling, uh, connecting those dots. And that's where we are now. And the sad thing is, I think where you are now is there is even more money and more fame to be made by doubling and tripling down on that model in many ways than there was even post 9-11 or, you know, post surge or, you know, during the rise of ISIS, these really conten- contentious and momentous times. I think it's just gotten worse. Yeah, no, I, I agree with a lot of that. And I also just can't shake the feeling that so many of our problems have to do with the problems of, of affluence and our psychological inability to, which I understand very well in the sort of, in the Jewish cultural realm, uh, our inability to accept the fact that things are pretty much okay. And, you know, and, and we've talked about this other thing a little bit before, you know, part of it is, has to do with our wiring is that the, the person who's paranoid about the rustling in the bushes, um, may be wrong about a lion being there waiting for them. But if they act as if they're right, 
they live another day because one time in 10, there is a line in there. The person who's ah, the odds of a line being there nah, and then gets eaten by a lion. And those that sort of so the paranoia, there's a survival function involved in, 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 in anticipating the worst possibility. And I think that when you have a whole society that by any historical measure, you know, I mean, look, I understand there are, there are, the, there are struggling, hardworking, poor people. There are people in terrible situations with, with Hurricane Ida. But as a general proposition, the people who are plugged in, turned on, very online, on Twitter, they are not, as a rule, spending big chunks of their day wondering how they're going to feed themselves or, or quell their starvation, right? They are looking for things to be concerned about. And it would be nice if the people who took seriously the idea that we were 10 minutes from midnight on Sharia law taking over <laughs> this country would say, you know, Frank Gaffney told me that or whoever told me that, you know, you know, and now he's telling me China is taking over my country. Or now he's telling me that the woke uh, critical race theorists are taking over my country. I have problems with woke and critical race theory, you have problems with it. We have a lot of agreement, a little disagreement about how to deal with some of it, but that's fine. But I'm going to have a grain of salt or two when I hear someone who told me like five years ago <laughs> that, that we were going to have, you know, that women were going to be in burqas and we were going to be living under Sharia law. If they're now telling me, oh yeah, that's, that's not the problem. Now the problem is cultural Marxists, you know, from what Mark Levin calls the Franklin school. Um, <laughs> taking over everything, and um, my my Franklin, Tennessee school. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's Ben Franklin. In fact, you know. Uh, but oh, like, okay, okay. But uh, no, and then there's like, and the same thing goes for the left. I mean, the left is, in some ways, one of the reasons why it was difficult for me to see so much of this stuff on the right for so long is because the left has been catastrophizing and apocalyptifizing, if that's a word things my entire adult life, my entire life, they've been saying we are 10, 10 minutes from midnight or that fascism is finally here or that, you know, um, um, uh, you know, the, I mean, I think climate change is a real thing, but like, you know, that the, 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 we have five minutes left to take care of climate change. We're all dead kind of stuff. Um, and when one side is hysterical, you kind of like, if you feel like your job is to poke sides in them about their hy hystericalness, you don't think about it enough about your own side enough. True, true. I mean, you know, the 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 stereotypical thing to say, and it's kind of the stereotypical thing to say because it's got a lot of truth to it, is rewind the rhetoric to 2012 and the warnings about Mitt freaking Romney. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, people on the left, I think often now because they sort of seen a different world, what the, what a different world would look like kind of want to say, ah, no, we, you know, we never really treated Mitt like that. Oh yeah, you did. Oh, oh, oh yeah, you did. And, you know, and so what ends up happening is, and this is something that I, when I was in Iraq in 07 and 08, and I would interact with, uh, Shia police officers, I'd interact with the Sunni uh, sheikhs because we had to, our, our, our area of operation was almost evenly split Sunni Shia, which was meant it was ground zero Iraqi civil war, ground zero Al Qaeda in Iraq. I mean, it was a bad, bad place. And you talk to these guys and you, you kind of get into why are you fighting these other guys? And it's not, well, you know, you need to understand this fine point of Sunni theology is just garbage. Or it wasn't even, 
you have to understand that the Iraqi parliament, the way it's composed, is going to provide a, a, a worse share of oil res, you know, resources to, even though those were disputes, those disputes existed. It was, they killed my uncle or they, they killed my nephew. And what we're beginning to get into is ev- each side of the political spectrum right now has a tale of, of grievance to tell about the other one that is grounded in actual things that happened. They're actual things. I mean, the, the left can look at the right and can say, look, you did this and you did this and you did this. And the right can go back and look at the left and say, oh, do we want to go down that road? You did this and you did this. And that's what really tip began when I saw that dynamic. That's what really tipped me over into alarm about our country was that we're in the airing of the grievances stage. It's not just about policies. It's not just about, it's not about even different philosophies. It's you and yours did something terrible to me and mine. And that's where we are right now. And that is that's where it gets really hard. And, and there are people who have specialized in conflict in the third world, in the developing world, who have pulled resources here at home to look at what's going on and said, we see some of the same dynamics. And then one last thing, just to echo what you said, we know who the primary drivers of division in this country are. I mean, this is something that's been pretty well established by social science, and it is not the people who are struggling. It is disproportionately white, disproportionately well-educated, disproportionately wealthy Americans who view politics kind of as a hobby. And so, in other words, one of the most wealthy, powerful cohorts of human beings ever to inhabit the planet Earth are driven by a catastrophic mindset. And one of the reasons why we go down the rabbit hole of a Sharia or we go down the rabbit hole of you name it is these are folks with resources and time on their hands <laughs> to dive into all of it. And, and that, that's who's, I mean, the, there's great research from this group called More in Common about who is pulling us apart, and that's the demographic. And, and a lot of them are also feeling at the same time very self-righteous because they're saying, I'm speaking on behalf of the people who aren't actually with them and aren't actually participating with them and don't actually share all their, <laughs> their mindsets. Um, all right. Well, we're not going to settle these issues despite our violent agreement. <laughs> we're not very quickly. Um, we should do a little pop culture just because it, you know, not that I want to own anybody, but it does annoy all the right people. So, um, um, you've seen this new sh- Shang-Chi, the new, the new Marvel movie. I have seen it. Uh, I, I did not see it. Too much to my shame, I did not see it opening night. Uh, I saw it the next night, Saturday night, in IMAX, though. And did you see it by yourself? No, I took, I took my 13-year-old. Oh, um, uh, okay. So she, she is of the... She is now part of uh, the French kids being drafted to go to movies with dad crew now that the older two are at college this is my crisis as an empty nester is i got to figure out you know how to go to these movies. I'm not, i don't mind going to the movies by myself it's just it's it's one thing like i saw that um that that uh nine days movie by myself and i felt fine because it was sort of an eggheady art house movie but like going to a you know i just gotta i gotta i just i gotta figure it out because like, i have to say literate in these important issues how was it 
it was really good. I mean, I would put it as top tier Marvel. Um, the stars were really appealing. Um, I did not understand the dynamics of r- ten ring combat very well, Jonah. Uh-huh, I, was, uh-huh. I was very curious about how do ten bracelets basically um, provide you with that sort of like superpower dynamic. V- you know, I now fully understand. I think we should be researching that kind of technology. Um, no, it was very well done. It was very well done in the way that Marvel movies are very well done in the sense that you're going to laugh a lot. You're going to look at it and you're going to say, that was very cool. Um, there was some mild aim at the fields. Um, it's just sort of a, a, here, here's a fun night at the movies. You know, it's not well done in the way that say a, a Snyder or Nolan DC film is, which is I'm trying to take a superhero movie and make it a film, (laughs) make it a cinematic moment. This was Marvel saying, we know what we do. And this is a really good version of what we do. And I, I really enjoyed it. Now I will not say it's to me, it's not the movie of the summer. The movie of the summer is free guy in my view. So I really liked free guy. I, I know I so good. I, I, the only reason I saw it was that it was like the one movie playing around where we were out in California and that we hadn't seen and my daughter wanted to do one last daddy daughter movie before she went to college. And so I was, all right, let's go see free guy. I was shocked. It was legit good. And I'm, 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 I would love to know all of the sort of video game inside jokes that I missed. Um, I could tell, I could tell that some of them were there and I just didn't know what they were, you know? Um, but, uh, I thought it was shockingly entertaining. Yeah. We, we all went as a family because, um, with the exception, exception of my oldest daughter, when, when my son went, son was home visiting from college and my wife went too. we dragged her. She just wanted to come with us and she loved it. And my son, who's a, a video gamer par excellence, uh, could pick out all of the elements. I mean, it's roughly sort of based on the grand theft auto gen- genre. Yeah, yeah. And, but man, it was a, it was funny. B it was entertaining and C it actually had real heart to it. And uh, yeah, totally. To me, it's the head and shoulders of the big summer movies. I've seen all the big sort of Marvel, um, big action tent poles that have come out and it's head and shoulders above all the others. Although Fast and Furious 9 did feature a Fiero, a 1980s Pontiac Fiero docking with the International Space Station. So there was that. There is that. I, I, I have not seen... Fast and Furious Nine. I will say, my part of my problem with the Fast and Furious. I mean, I have many problems. I mean, it's it's basically a <laughs> come on. What's wrong with this picture? Is you know, placemat <laughs> at a diner um, when it comes to movies. But so, like, one of my problems with Fast and Furious movies is similar to one of my problems with Sharknado. So uh, in Sharknado, right? How so, dare you? <laughs> in Sharknado, they're flying sharks, right? They're scooped up by some, you know anomalous tornado kind of event and these sharks are flying through the air, whatever down for that. You know, that's great. I mean, like <laughs> fine. Um, it, it, mostly in Florida. So like, what, you know, you know, sorry, Charlie. Uh, but when they were shooting at the sharks and they would shoot a shark and then it would fall right. As if it had the power of flight. And if you killed it, it would then <laughs> fall. <laughs> when in reality it's just a projectile and you could shoot it 
and <laughs> it should not change its flight trajectory meaningfully in any way. And I have a similar problem with like in flight in the Fast and Furious movies. They kind of visually give you the sense that like when they turn the wheel, it changes the trajectory of the car when it's flying through the air. <laughs> and I'm not saying they, they say it outright, but it's hinted at that like they're kind of flying cars. And yeah. um that kind of stuff kind of drives me crazy. But, yeah, you know, there if you if you are a aficionado of the FFEU, the Fast and Furious Extended Universe, uh, you will know that there was a tipping point around Fast Five or so where it went from hey, we're trying to ground this in some sort of realistic version of like what you can do to a car and turned it into, this is wink, wink, nod, nod, a superhero movie um, that you, we're not really billing as a superhero movie. But then in F9, it became so fully self-aware that it was like the characters realized that they were superheroes. Um, but yeah, so you if you saw the original and then you saw like eight and nine, you would think, is this the same genre? It's just gone way, way, way beyond. Which is why I'm waiting for the big crossover Transformers Fast and Furious, right? <laughs> Where you actually have the cars <laughs> set, truly sentient um, and able to do all these kinds of things. Um, and so I assume you saw Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, you know, the, car, the cartoon Spider-Man. Jonah, have yeah. we met? Of course I've seen. I, I just wanted to, you know, to clear the air. Okay, so um, I have a theory that Marvel is now going all in on basically that, the metaphysics of that movie, where you, and that that allows you to change up characters, reintroduce characters. There's word on the street. I've been, I've been, you know, uh, uh, spread, dropping Benjamins on all my shoeshine guys to get the skinny um <laughs> is that the new spider-man movie is going to have like all three peter parkers in the same movie or four whatever the full gamut of peter parkers and the only way you can make stuff like that work is if you really buy into the multiverse stuff where you can just chinese menu mix and match grab you know grab a loki from this universe grab a peter parker from that universe and throw them into this storyline and that way no characters are ever truly dead because you can always bring them back, which was always a problem with the real comic books is like, you know, it cost you nothing to bring a comic book character back. Um, and the, the dead giveaway for me in the, was the Loki show because in the Loki show, they actually had an alligator Loki. And if you're willing to have an alligator Loki from the allig sentient alligator universe, why wouldn't, why couldn't you have a porky pig Spider-Man? Right. I mean, it doesn't like, I, I want to meet the person who's willing to say, oh, alligator Loki makes total sense, but like Porky Big Spider-Man, that's a bridge too far. You know I mean? Like at this point, yeah, yeah. you're bought in, right? And so I, and yeah, and I, my suspicion is, is that this is a brilliant business move because it allows them to have female characters that allows them to respond to the demands of the marketplace. You can have all Chinese Avengers from some universe. I mean, it doesn't matter anymore because you can now just because the space time continuum is 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 an ETM ATM machine, a bottomless ATM machine of characters now. I'm going to disagree with you pretty strongly. Uh -oh. I think that it is a very dangerous move for them because it lowers the stakes of everything. So, so if you have a multiverse, 
Um, it's you know what it reminds me of. It reminds me of sort of the holodeck. Mm-hmm. Hated and, the holodeck. It's it's just oh I hate the holodeck is satanic. It's just devilish. And but anyway, it it just lowers the stakes of everything because how real is this? I mean, well, let's just go to another multiverse and everybody's alive. And the thing that gave the Avengers movies some punch, even though all of those alternative branching timelines raise the possibility of all of this stuff as well as you felt you felt the stakes of it it was the first like marvel arc where i you really felt like the weight of the stakes of it and even in shang chi you'll see like the support group pictures that are on the wall for the blip and all of this stuff so the avengers movie it's all hanging over everything the blip is hanging over everything so you feel stakes it feels you know not real of course but it feels like there's weight to it but if you just multiverse everything, I mean, then you're just going cotton candy all the way down. I mean, it's, yeah. no, it's a good hey, point. I'm, I'm enjoying this movie because it's candy and then it just dissolves in the mouth and there's nothing there to chew on at all. And I think that that would be a big mistake for them because so much of what made Avengers Infinity War and Endgame worth something and such a moment was that who's going to live, who's going to die how is this all going to unfold? This is huge. This is big. And if you multiverse it, as much as I loved the Loki show, just sort of his artistry all on its own, I just felt like, man, every episode lowers the stakes because there's just constant endless possibilities of resetting. Yeah, no, that's, that's a very good point. And, um, I mean, the one limitation until CGI gets much better, uh, the one limitation is, the natural life expectancy of the actors themselves. Right. <laughs> um, and that's why we have a new black widows because, you know, I mean, not, not that Charlotte, jo- Scarlett Johansson is old and dying or anything like that, but she's like, I'm done with the character and we need to come up with a new black widow. And, um, and the same thing with, uh, what's his name? Who plays Wolverine. Um, um, but, uh, Hugh Jackman, sorry. Um, Hugh Jack- yeah, but so, all right, I'll, I'll take that under consideration. Um, one point which longtime readers of the old corner and early listeners of this podcast might recall my biggest objection among the terrible, terrible license for self-indulgence of the Star Trek cast, um, which the holodeck was. I mean, it was just basically like Patrick Stewart doesn't want to play a space captain anymore. He can play a gangster now. And that stuff drove <laughs> me crazy. Oh, um, man. But my biggest problem within the confine, the technical confines of the actual show um, was when Jordy would go on the holodeck because Jordy had this visor that he could see the full spectrum, electromagnetic spectrum, X-ray, ultraviolet, right? Not just the, visible, the little narrow band of visible light that we see, but the entire spectrum. And he would go on the holodeck and he would see what are supposed to be just projections of photons and say, and, and they would look like humans to him. If they look like humans to him, they are human beings. And like, that's a problem. You know, it just makes no sense. Damn it. There was nothing, nothing that made sense about the holodeck. It was, it was magic in a show that's supposed to be about science fiction. Exactly. And yeah, but, but that was a ton of Star Trek anyway. I mean, how are we going to fix this? You know, technobabble, technobabble, technobabble. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Although I got to say the, um, the original Star Trek episode, um, uh, was it let this be my last battle? Let me, I'll remember it. 
the one where you have the guys with their faces are half black and half white, but the one guy has the black on the left side and the other guy has the black on the right side. And this is why they hate each other and think each other is inferior and one's an oppressor and one's a victim and all this kind of stuff. And it's this entirely arbitrary distinction that people have to have pointed out to them. I think about that more and more when I talk about this tribalism stuff, because it really does. It, it, there are real differences to be sure in our politics and our culture and they're meaningful and they're serious, but some of them are just, I hate those guys and let me find the, the, the nearest rationalization to hand to do it. And that, that episode kind of captures it in a certain way. Yeah. Oh, but isn't that the truth? It is politics based on animosity. So whatever you like, by definition, I'm not going to like it. Right. Right. And, yeah. All right, my friend. I like having you on The Remnant. I appreciate it. Um, obviously, we shall see each other again. Obviously, you'll be back on here. Um, <laughs> there will be days where um, I was overserved, where I'm going to have to have you sub for me again. You know, who knows? <laughs> anyway, thanks, David. Thanks, Jonah. Okay, so uh, David has left the conversation. Um, always good to have him on. Uh, and uh, I got really, I mean, I got more stuff to talk about on a lot of these other issues, but um, we'll just save them for, for later. I'm going to do a special podcast with my friend Ramesh um, Panuru. So we're going to revisit some of this stuff with him on the abortion side because um, I have some follow-up questions that would be good with him. And, um, and uh, I can't remember what else I was going to talk to you people about. So I'm going to stop talking and I'll just see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. <laughs>